On this final comment section episode for the first season of Download, we will share our thoughts as well as audience reactions to our postscript interview with Harry Knowles. We've got a couple of updates related to the world of Ain't It Cool News, plus a comment from Mr. Frodo Baggins himself. All of this and more. So let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Welcome to the comments section of Download. I'm Joe, and uh, with me as always is my executive producer. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, Joe. I'm Christina Bell. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about the final episodes with you. Yeah, well, you know, we we survived to the <laughs> end of our first season. Here's a question for you. Were there ever any times when you thought we might not make it? No, I, I never thought that we wouldn't make it. I mean, I think certainly there there were times that our schedule was tight, right? Speaking of our schedules, one thing that did not sync up was our COVID schedules. Like, Oh, God, yeah. We, we kind of just rotated COVID in each other's households. Not that we gave it to each other. It's just no. suddenly one person had it in their household, then another person had it in their household. Uh, then yep. someone had it in my household, and they were holed up in the room where I did all my recording. Yeah. So. Um, COVID is not convenient. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's a kind of a drag, but yeah, yeah, we uh, we made it. We told the story we set out to tell. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, thank you so much for uh, just being there and and really helping to make the show what it was, Chris. I really appreciate that. Thanks for bringing me on. It's been a fun project, and I'm glad I've been able to work with you and Eddie on it. So thank you. Yeah. Shout yeah. out to Eddie for all of his hard work. 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I believe me, if you left me in charge of solving uh, the audio question for the show mm -hmm. and, and setting all the levels, the show would have sounded terrible. <laughs> you, you've He's listened great. to my temporary edits that I create. You know this. <laughs> yeah. Eddie's very good at what he does. We're lucky to have him. So really quickly, before we dive into some questions, comments, and feedback from our listeners, um, we have three updates since we released the ninth and final episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles. Uh, that episode was titled The Air We Breathe. And uh, first up, at the end of the last episode, we talked about how Ain't It Cool News was a former shell of what it used to be with about one update per month. And maybe in response to that, but... Since that episode dropped, a new person who calls himself House of McCloud joined the Ain't It Cool team, huh. and he's been posting a lot, a hmm. lot. And the one thing I'll say about that is that I, I do hope he is at least being paid for his work. Yeah, yeah. You I know, hope it, so, too. Because the one thing I will say, if, if he is listening to this, is that you know we've kind of detailed the slaughterhouse floor, how people mm -hmm. enter and the state they're in once they leave. Um, so uh, the same thing has happened to so many people who've been involved with this. So I, I just hope that he's demanding something different than when other people got who entered this, uh, this factory before them. So mm -hmm. here's hope. Or they, right? They. I don't think we know the gender, right? Yeah. Right. I hope, I hope they are getting paid what they deserve. A hundred percent. Uh, 
shortly after the ninth episode, here's another update. Uh, we caught a little bit of flack for comparing the release, the Snyder Cut movement, and the cult of people who denied the validity of our election mm-hmm. in uh, 2020. Then within a week of that ha- of releasing that episode, Rolling Stone magazine released an article written by Tatiana Siegel uh, on this interesting fact about how a significant portion of the Snyder Cut movement consisted of disingenuous social media activity, including bots. They say as much as uh, 10 or 13 percent. And, you know, which I got to say, that sounds a lot like what happened during the presidential elections in 2016 and 2020. And I'm not saying that both matters are of equal importance or seriousness, but, you know, there were just similar tactics at play in both stories. I thought it was uh, it, it was eerie to me. Yeah, it's interesting, like with 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 the Internet and the way we interact, it's like um, things change rapidly and we don't always catch up to that with laws and awareness and media literacy. So like I think in both cases, you see some of the same problems happening that caused um, these sort of toxic communities. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think they are connected in the in the in the fact that they they showcase the same sort of problems in internet culture right so i i think that's a great example that you brought up yeah i i think another interesting thing is that you know because harry knowles and inequal news and other websites like that sort of created this game plan for disruption in the entertainment business uh eventually people realized it wasn't that hard to just automate that Exactly. And like, I really wanted to kind of focus on the word that you use game plan, because Harry Knowles, at the end of his interview, um, talked about how performing on the internet was like a game to him. And he had this persona on the internet um, that he sort of like leaned into. And I think when you're on the internet, it's really easy to disassociate from other humans. And you, you, you can kind of think of this world as being like a game and you can um, hurt other people without really thinking about the consequences and how that's affecting them. It's like easier to avoid empathy. Right. And so now we have this, this possibility of bots, right. That we can use as our little army, right. On the internet to, um, you know, participate in our game and that, that can be kind of concerning. Right. So, um, I think things like moderation and awareness and media literacy are really key to like helping fix this issue. Speaking of disassociating and and not Mm -hmm. being able to connect on a human level, um, Mm -hmm. this weekend, Harry Knowles went viral again. Oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, Mm -hmm. he wrote a post this weekend, um, after the death of actress Anne Heche, and I'll just read what he said. Normally, we would have actor Ben Jones uh, to read the Harry Knowles parts, but um, he's not here on this show with us, unfortunately. So you're just going to have to make do with me. But here's exactly what Harry said. He said, Anne Heche died particularly badly. Can't really imagine that day where she bought a red wig, loaded up a Mini Cooper, and met a fiery, smoky, third-degree burns, as I see, uh, smoke inhalation, then finally a coma and death. She starred in the remake of Psycho, dot, dot, dot. But even that doesn't deserve what happened to her. I kid. But what happened to her was horrible, just brutal, savage even. 
Always found her slightly annoying. Just not my fave. But today I've rewatched Volcano in six days, seven nights, and loved her in both. The worst is behind her. R.I.P. and Heish, you deserve better. End quote. Mm. And when he posted this, um, it was screen capped, and it really led to uh, Twitter, mainly film Twitter, tearing Harry Knowles apart yet again. And it, you know, it was just kind of reminiscent of the feeling of going on to Ain't Equal News talkbacks, just sort of yeah. across the entire internet. But you know, I, I think there were a couple of takeaways for me. You know, people wanted to know what I thought about this, and I, I think number one, this is how Harry's mom died. Almost verbatim, she passed out drunk in a house fire and and burned to death. And it seems like the only way Harry was able to react with to this story, which should feel very personal to him, it should hit very close to home. But it seemed like the only way he could react was to disconnect mm-hmm. and to sort of and to sort of just find ties to to this experience with movies and. Clearly, that's just a problem that he's had for a long time, and I, I, it's just more the same, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think that also kind of showcase when he wrote that tweet. I wonder was he thinking about her family and friends that would see that tweet? He probably just felt like he was talking to the film community, film Twitter, but wasn't thinking about the personal aspect there. Because I wonder if he would have rephrased you know, phrase things a little differently if he had thought about her family reading it. Because, yeah, it definitely lacks some sensitivity. Yeah. You know, I do feel like sometimes there are celebrities who, who pass away and everyone sort of rushes to eulogize them. And maybe some of that can be disingenuous. But that that's fine to me. You know, it, my whole thing is if you have nothing nice to say about someone after they've sure. died, just shut up. Yeah, that's Don't, fair. Don't tweet, mm-hmm. don't type, but that's, that's fair. You know what? What also happened though is Harry did not apologize for the post. Mm-hmm. He has not acknowledged that it might have been in poor taste to write this, and more importantly, he didn't just delete it. And you know, I, I think that's just something that uh, we've seen again and again. It's something we saw during the interview with Harry Knowles, and that sort of leads to this next part of our story where we. I wanted to share two different reactions that we had to the interview we had with Harry Knowles. And uh, Chris, do you want to kick mm-hmm. off uh, this final comment section? Uh, yeah, for us? I'm happy to take over. So, so yeah, um, we did have two, these comments really kind of highlight the different polarized perspectives that we got um, from your final interview. So the first one is from Brandon David Wilson and he wrote, I finished download pod like Willard confronting Kurtz at the end of apocalypse now. <laughs> We, we hear the subject himself. It is illuminating. We see the attempts to charm, the intelligence, the Texan's love of family yarns, and how totally incapable he is of seeing what he's done. The subject is not always compelling as Willard Kurtz, but I appreciate the length of the conversation. Even his less egregious sins are always explained away despite the obvious paucity of evidence for his claims. Perfect. Now, on the flip side, we have this comment from Nigel, mm-hmm. who says, have to say I was disappointed with Joe Scott's interview of Harry. When Harry rejected all claims of inappropriate behavior against women, Scott did not come with receipts to challenge him. Instead, he allowed Harry to make himself look like a sympathetic character. 
quote, I'm in a wheelchair and women are six feet tall. They press their breasts in my face when they hug me, pushing my wheelchair back because it doesn't have brakes, end quote. Why not come with a list of his inappropriate behavior against women and go over each allegation one by one? Ask him why each woman is accusing him of predatory behavior. That excuse that he was given drugs at the draft house is ludicrous. Tell him that he's only responsible for his actions. Maybe ask him what he felt he did wrong when under the influence and what behavior he regrets. Also, to allow him to say that he didn't pay his staff because his advertisers didn't pay up is ridiculous. The IRS went after him for not paying his taxes. Ain't it cool news made money. Where did it go? Challenge him. Instead, you're allowing Harry to control the narrative, allowing him to talk about family tragedies and bullying in school. He was trying to make himself the victim, and you allowed him to do it. At least tell him, Harry, you are not a victim. So, like, I get both perspectives. Like, I felt like your interview really had some great closure, right? I feel like it came full circle. You started off talking about the podcast, about how you were a fan of the site, and you ended – by saying, I cannot be a fan anymore, right? Like, I see the wrongs that were caused, right? So it's just like this full circle thing. Um, and the whole podcast was told without Harry's voice. Yeah. So this was sort of your take, like, hey, I'm going to give you his voice. This is his side of the story. I'm keeping it apart from the rest. You know, listen to it if it's not triggering to you, right? And yeah. I appreciate that take. But on the flip side, when you're very frustrated with someone, I guess you want someone to just shake them and be like, (laughs) what the heck? You know, like, how can you say this? So I definitely get Nigel's sort of frustration um, when listening to his interview. So so can you talk a little bit more about your reasoning, like why you took this approach um, and whether you would do it all the same way again? Sure. You had to do it over. Mm -hmm. Sure. So. I'll start by just thanking both people for listening Mm -hmm. to that interview. It was a lot to listen to. And uh, thank you also for sharing your opinions, uh, both. Um, You know, and the one thing I will say, I'll say two things. One, I hope no one thinks I'm still a fanboy of Ain't It Cool News. (laughs) I feel like I've said enough to make it clear what my stance on that website and its legacy uh, is. Uh, as well as just showing my appreciation for the people who did work there and had to move on under uh, less than ideal circumstances. But the other thing I'll say is, you know, there's sort of a, a context surrounding this interview. And the context is, you know, as much research and insight as I had during the show, I didn't have a lot of that when I interviewed Harry Knowles. Um, Harry Knowles interview happened abruptly in the middle of my interview process. You know, I did interviews, then I went and did research. Then I came back with a few sort of second round interviews with some people. Uh, And then I also interviewed a lot of uh, media scholars to sort of round things out and to provide more context. Um, So when our interview took place, you know, he approached me out of the blue. He said, I hear you've been investigating me. I was a little shocked that he found out. I was curious as to who spilled the beans as to how, you know, as to the fact that we were doing the show uh, long before it came out. And, um, you know, essentially I bluffed. I asked if he wanted to do an interview, really truly hoping that he would say, uh, no, I don't want to comment on anything. And, and then just disappear and leave us to do our work 
But then he said yes. So I was sort of facing this scenario where I, I had to do something I didn't want to do really. And, and, you know, we had these conversations during the time the interview happened. I was like, I, you know, I, I don't want to include this in the show at all. But, um, so we talked and, you know, I really tried to make it a point when I interview anyone, uh, to listen to them. I don't confront people when I listen. Um, I just listen and, as we were talking, one of my strategies was to give Harry enough room and enough rope to either A, make his case, if he had a case, or B, to hang himself. And I think the fact that one person who liked the interview and one person who hated the interview both walked away with similar conclusions sort of speaks to that verdict. Yeah. You know, I absolutely agree. That, you know, he was trying to control the narrative. He is an extremely manipulative person. I, the other thing I will say, though, is the reason he shared those family stories is because I asked him about those family stories. I wanted to get more context on who he was as a person. You know, and one thing I learned during that interview that I didn't know was, you know, I knew that when he was a kid, he was part of this so-called great media experiment where his parents played extremely violent movies. What I didn't know was that they were also playing pornography yeah. for his kid. And I've got to say, as a parent, if I found out someone was playing pornography mm -hmm. for my kid, I would want to throttle them. I would be really upset. And the fact that that was something his parents actively allowed and thought was okay um, sort of maybe provides some context about his perspective on boundaries. And I want to make one thing clear understanding someone is not an excuse for their right. behavior or an justification on any level. You know, I think we all in some level and are on some degree, we're all fucked up in a way. And it's our responsibility as people, as adults to unfuck ourselves. We have to, or the abuse that happened to us. And I say this as a survivor of abuse, uh, then spirals outward to harm other people. So, yeah, yeah. I prefer the term unlearn, but yes, exactly, right? There's a lot of things that we have to unlearn. And I think that just to kind of jump forward and make this connection. That's a more healthy term, unlearn. Right, yeah. To make this connection too, um, later I know we're going to talk about people who criticize our sort of critique of media and like how you um, pull in these media critiques throughout the podcast. But like we're product of our culture. We contribute to culture, but we're also a product of our culture. And a lot of us have to unlearn the type of things that we were taught as children by our families that were unhealthy or toxic, but also some of the messages that we got from uh, media, right? So so this is this process of unlearning, I think is important. And the question is, did Harry Knowles unlearn <laughs> enough in his life? Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think obviously the answer is no. Yeah. He seems very much stuck, very much unwilling to confront or even acknowledge not only the harm he caused, but maybe also the harm that was caused to him. He doesn't seem to have a problem with any of it. And here again, you know, this week he's making light of a woman who died in a horrible fire, just like his mom did. And, yeah. I, you know, I just think there's a, a glaring absurd lack of empathy 
he did mention how he uses gallows humor you know to 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 do like remember he made like a weird joke about his wife and said that's his gallows humor so i think i think that's possibly how he copes with things but the problem is is when you use something like that in a mass communication text you know like tweet like when you tweet something like that people that don't know you don't understand your humor people that are personally affected by it right that's 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 not going to come across in a way that yeah. perhaps you intended mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah. I'll the other thing I'll say too is that there's sort of an illusion of, of time within this piece it I tried to present as much of it as I could the pieces that I shared uh, in a largely unedited fashion so that people could glean their own understanding based on the context of itself but I had to edit things away. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, you know, when we were initially during our first interview talking and he started discussing the accusations, um, there's a whole part I had to cut out because uh, he said he wanted to say some things off the record. Right. And I, I did cut those things. And the one more thing I do want to point out is the reason I didn't just come forward with these women's stories um, I've been in conversation with uh, two different survivors who came forward and made accusations in 2017, and neither of them really wanted me to share any parts of their stories like with him. These women didn't want me to be their hero. Yeah. And so, you know, I think people wanted Harry to be confronted. I think they wanted him to be punished. I don't think it was necessarily my job to punish. I, you know, and I, if you look at Harry's life as it is now versus the way it was even 10 years ago, I think uh, life has meted out some serious justice um, to him. Is it everything that he deserves? That's not entirely for me to say, but. Um, yeah, not, I, not everything can be wrapped up as neatly as a movie, right? So. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. You know, and. That's a great point. You know, life is not a movie. Mm-hmm. So I I uh, talked to him for five hours. And mm-hmm. in that period, I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. I was completely wiped out. I had uh, electrolyte deficiencies at the end. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, just, I would just say that's, it was, if it seemed like I was tired at times, I was. If it seemed like I wasn't responding as much as I could have at times, it's because I was kind of getting rope-a-doped. I was a little wore out. You know, I try to listen very carefully. Listening is exhausting for me. Oh, yeah. So Yeah. No, it, it is challenging. And also when you're dealing with such a heavy subject matter, I was actually a little – like scared to even listen to his interview, to be honest. Um, yeah. it, just because do you really want to listen, you know, to someone who was accused of, of doing those things? Do you really want to hear their perspective? Do you really want to honor that? Right. Um, I think what you, I think it's good that you talk to him, you know, and, and you have his perspective. I think that, you know, the, you did your due diligence as a reporter yeah. I think it's also okay okay for those of you that just skip that episode because you need to. That's fine. Um, so, but yeah, I'm glad you have it. 
So thank you for taking the labor on to to interview him. I'm sure that was not easy. For sure. You know, I'll give people a peek behind the curtain here and say that um, there was a significant drop off from episode nine, which was the true finale of our story. Like you mm-hmm. got the full story there to this postscript episode. There was a significant mm-hmm. drop off. There were a lot of people who, given the opportunity to listen to Harry Knowles, said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And I fully understand. Um, the other thing I'll say, too, is that uh, I can track when people stop listening to a show. And uh, very few people got past the first hour of that interview. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it's a gauntlet. And, you know, yeah. it's not entertaining, but I don't think that's the kind of thing that is entertaining. I think yeah. if you were approaching that interview, hoping for entertainment or joy or, you know, to listen to a guy just verbally beat the shit out of someone. It wasn't any of those things. Right. No, it was was more of an act of transparency than anything else. Well, shall we move on to feedback? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. All right. So we actually have a tweet from Elijah Wood, the Elijah Wood, uh, who is an indie filmmaker, if you do not know, and he acted in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the good son. Um, I think I first saw him in The Good Son. That was the first time I was introduced to him. He's um, but great think, in The Good yeah, Son. He is. He he did a great job. He's a he's a very good actor. Um, so, but most people probably know him from The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, but he tweeted that he hasn't listened to the bonus episodes, these commentaries, like what we're doing right now. Um, and he said, But why even reference your listeners at all? It should just be a documentary podcast. So this is kind of interesting. It sounds like he's sort of questioning why we're bringing up people's comments and feedbacks and kind of talking them through, talking through it. And I have my own ideas about why we're doing it, but let me kind of turn it over to you because this was your idea. So what made you want to do this? It was my idea. It was my fault. Um, The first thing (laughs) I'll say was that, you know, these episodes, the narrative episodes took a lot of time to produce. Some of them were the result of two months of work. Um, the, the shortest bare minimum amount of time I could get one turned around was three weeks from beginning to end. And I was trying to keep a weekly content schedule. And I, I thought the best way to do it was to sort of fill in the gaps each week with these comment section episodes where we just share the reactions of people who listened and uh, to answer any questions they might have. And Part of me viewed it as a, also as a social experiment. One of the themes that we really tried to present in the end was the, was the impact that Harry Knowles and his website had on internet discourse. Uh, the just sort of abusive nature, you know, just sort of normalizing abusive language in the way we communicate just every day online. And so I was reading especially some of the worst comments, the more hateful comments And um, what I didn't expect was that I created a feedback loop. Uh, Once people realize, oh, if I say something really mean, this guy's going to read it on his show. um, I I sort of rewarded and encouraged people to do more of that. And someone even said it. It became a game. (laughs) It became a game. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the reason I shut it down. And, And part of the reason I shut it down is because someone made a sexually aggressive comment about both of us. And I was like, okay, I need to realize here that I have created a situation kind of like ain't it cool news where I was encouraging people to engage in their worst behavior. 
And, you know, the person who made this comment, um, you know, I've seen them online in other contexts and they seem typically like a nice person. Oh, there's my alarm. Uh, They seem typically like a nice person. And I didn't really create a context for this person to continue being that person. I was rewarding this behavior and it came out. And so, you know, aside from the time it takes to do these comment section episodes, when we came back for the the second half of the season, I just, we nixed it. I was like, let's just not do these right now. Yeah. I mean, that kind of, yeah, like not to reiterate this point, but that does really feed into, they're not really thinking about that we are people, right? And um, we are professionals and, you know, and and how their words might come across. Um, So yeah, it's kind of ick. So I don't blame you. But like on the flip side, like one of the things I like about this comment section and one of the things I like, one of the reasons I like that we're doing it again is that it's encouraging us to be sort of self-reflexive and transparent about this entire process. Yeah. This might be me speaking as like a professor and a researcher, but I think like revealing your biases and like revealing how you think about things is actually really good and beneficial to the listener, you know? Um, So it can help them sort of contextualize the information that you're giving them. Um, And it also makes us better media producers, right? Like we're reading this feedback and it's forcing us to think about why we're making the decisions that we're making and it's causing us to be better. So the thoughtful criticisms, the constructive criticisms have really helped us, I think. So we appreciate those. Um, the icky ones, yeah, and they don't deserve a voice. So we'll just yeah. skip over those. Yeah, and I will say, you know, on an editorial level, that that is the change I made. When we when I started calling questions for this episode, um, there were a few I left out because I, they were just too mean. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that they were too mean that they hurt my feelings. Just I don't want to be like this dog owner who gives their pet a treat for taking a shit on the couch. Yeah. Because I think that's what the Internet is doing to so many people. And it's it's kind of just rewarding everyone's worst behaviors and Mm -hmm. making that the currency. And, you know, we've got to find ways to just reward people for being constructive, for creating things, for lifting people up, for encouraging others for helping uh, just for being better people. So, yeah. Yeah. uh, It's all about moderation and making sure people are identifiable. Those are, those two things make communities better. So moderation in both uses of the the word, both meanings of the word. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. All right. Here's our next comment. This is from Jeremy Herbert, who's writer for dead meat James and crooked marquee. He writes, incredible that an hours-long podcast about the rise and fall of Harry Knowles, complete with interviews from victims of his harassment, ultimately blames his behavior on 80s sex comedies and Bill Murray characters. Um, As a media studies professor, I'm going to say that I think that's oversimplifying our podcast a little bit. Like, I think you can be self-reflective about the media and how it affects us. Um, without blaming everything on the media, you know, and I, I think you did that, you know, I think you kind of made, made some comparisons. You kind of looked at how, how is this behavior reflected in our culture and, and, and media, you know, that we consume. Um, but no, Harry Knowles did not do this because of movies, right? He did this right. because of his choices. Absolutely. You know, I wasn't, I didn't really dive into that analysis of, 
sort of the normalization of sexual harassment and and sexual violence um, in our cinema culture as a way to excuse Harry Knowles. I, I did it as a way to show how there's a redefinition that's happening. You know, these yeah. behaviors were presented as yes. normal, healthy behaviors. It was presented as normal for a guy to Brit who after getting dumped by a woman to go to her house and like play a stereo over his head and, and refuse to leave. Like that's fucked up. That's harassment. You need to go, yep. man. Yep. And like, you need to stop. If that is how you are showing your amorous feelings for people that no longer want to have anything to do with you, you're, you're doing bad stuff. And um, that was, that was the point was that there's redefinitions happening and, you know, you can choose to acknowledge the redefinitions of our behavior and the way we look at our conduct, or you can choose to ignore them. But if you ignore them, you do so at your peril. Totally agree. And that connects with our next comment from Jeff, who said, I gave up when the host told us that say anything is about a deranged stalker. I mean, going like feeding off your point, I mean, I was, I was, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I had lots of female friends. And you you form your the, your your understandings of relationships, you know, you those were formed by the way your parents model relationships, the way family and friends around you model relationships, but also the media. So like I had to do some unlearning as a young woman, right? Because, yeah. you know, if your partner doesn't behave in a way similar to what you see on TV, you're like, is this love? Because, you know, because look at this romantic film, like, you know, this romance is so intense. Is this what it's supposed to be like, right? And so you kind of have to unlearn that. Um, yeah. On the flip side, young boys grew up watching these movies where it was like oh the girl says no don't you worry do not give up keep trying and eventually she will see that you are a good guy right and she will fall in love with you because you don't give up right so i saw boys you know being told no by girls and they they just wouldn't give up they would keep trying and trying and trying not yeah. realizing that they're actually harassing the girls and they were stressing the girls out um and i think Things are better. I hope things are better. I've seen a change in the media that we watch. You know, we don't romanticize that like we used to. Um, and I think yeah, I think it's good to be aware of that, right? So, so yeah, I mean, people make their own choices, of course. But, but you know, uh, when you're young, you don't have a lot of knowledge and you sometimes make mistakes, right, based off of the role models around you. So, yeah, I, th I think it was totally worthwhile talking about saying anything in that context. Yeah. You know, the, the last thing I'll say was the episode was called Hey Bells. We talked about a theater that was celebrated, even though it was full of dangerous, harmful materials that can hurt a lot of people. And um, I think that can also be a metaphor for us. Mm -hmm. Our next comment is from John Brock. He said, very disappointed in episode eight of the podcast in regards to the Ghostbusters reboot. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. It's just how much can we talk about Ghostbusters? Um, so he says, of course, there was a certain percentage of folks who were angry. It was cast with all women and or a person of color in the lead roles. But the main reason it was met with contempt was that the studio took another one of their major properties and used the marketing tool of rebooting the genders to create an instant moneymaker and generate a bit of controversy. 
much like how Disney reboots their animated classics into live-action movies and vice versa. It wasn't white male nerd rage that caused all the hate. It was anger that Hollywood once again gave us an updated version of something we've already seen. There's no originality left at the Dream Factory. I have lots of thoughts. Do you want to go first? Um, you know what? Why don't you go first? All right. All right. I'm on it. So um, so here, here's the thing that, that I, I kind of want to push back on. Um, we have so many long-running franchises of shows and movies and games, right? Mission Impossible. How many Mission Impossibles are there, right? Um, what about James Bond movies? How many of James Bond movies are out there where we recast the person over and over, right? Um, look at all the games. How many Resident Evils are out there? So this is something that we all know the media industry does. And the reason they do it is it's less risky to put out something in a known franchise than to create original content. Um, so what I want to kind of, you know, point out here is that whenever people complain, it's usually when we make a movie more diverse, right? So like yeah. in the case of Ghostbusters, right, the female cast is what they push back on. They don't freak out typically when we recast James Bond. They're like, oh, yeah. It's time. Let's get a new person. Um, but they do push back when we add female characters, we add black characters, Asian characters, Hispanic people, uh, you know, uh, Native American characters and whatnot, or queer characters. It becomes um, political. But, but I mean, like, I'm why? saying in their, in their mind. In their eyes. Yeah, in their eyes, it's political, but it's really just why should we not include different bodies and tell different stories? Because don't you guys get sick of talking about originality? Don't you get set, get sick of the same stories about dudes, white dudes all the time? Like, let's tell yeah. some more stories here. And then also, if you don't like this notion of franchises, I mean, I love, I love independent new content. Then my suggestion is to go to your art house cinemas your nonprofit theaters, go to film festivals, support these struggling independent filmmakers that don't have the money, the, the back, you know, the backing of these Hollywood films, um, celebrate that independent content and we will get more of it. Yeah. That's 100%. my take. <laughs> I mean, it's a great take because I think that by and large people were on the Ghostbusters wagon and weren't hitting the brakes on, you know, the sequel, the animated series. There were multiple mm -hmm. animated yeah. series. And then, you know, suddenly here's an all-girl remake and it's like, hit the brakes. And it's like, why, why? But the other thing I'll say is that when we talked about that on the show, there were some people who thought we were defending the movie on a critical level, which wasn't true. I think- no. There's legitimate reasons to not like that film. I didn't think it was perfect. But what isn't okay, and this is what I was saying was not okay, is to harass the cast members of the show, women cast members, black cast members, with racist or sexist messages on yes. social media. That's not okay. That's horrible. And if we disagree, great. I think you're a bad person. There we go. <laughs> I think that's a good take. Um, and yeah, it's not okay to harass people. And also I think people need to recognize that not every movie is made for you. You know what I mean? Like 
I think as a woman, <laughs> I don't know. There's a, I'm used to, there's a lot of movies that are made for teen boys or, yeah. you know, sometimes I get frustrated. Like I've talked to you about this before. I have a son that's very into Marvel and DC yeah, and there's only so up. many of those movies he can actually watch. And that's because the movies are not made for him. He is not the target audience. Right. Um, so sometimes you're not the target audience for something and just kind of accept that. <laughs> yeah. I had that realization. I worked in a movie theater when the Twilight movies were coming out. And right. at first I was like almost every other angry person on social media. I was just being a wet sandwich and complaining about those movies. But we hosted an event for the premiere of the second film. And, you know, I got to watch 18 theaters full of women all at the same time experiencing this joyful moment. They enjoyed the film. Uh, it was a party and I just got to hear them cheering and screaming. And I realized like, who am I to stand in the way of, of this joy? If someone likes something and it wasn't designed for me, like let it go. <laughs> like hundred percent. I, I, I have a deep dislike of twilight because I think from a relationship standpoint there, it, it portrays very unhealthy relationships. But um, I do think Twilight's a really interesting case because it's like, it kind of reminded Hollywood that women have money too. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, it's like they, they had forgotten about women for so long and, and they were like, Oh shoot, we can make a movie that really is just for women and it can make this much money. Wow. I think that yeah. it was a very important, you know, film franchise for that reason so i i, I do I, I i'm thankful for twilight that it reminded hollywood that we do exist and have money <laughs> but but yeah it's 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 not my favorite film well the other thing i'll say as a former film programmer is that women audiences are are far more responsive you know mm -hmm. they will go see a movie they will mm -hmm. spend money seeing it two or three times mm -hmm. where you know i i think if there was something geared solely towards men, it doesn't do as great. It just doesn't because I, I think men by and large are like, yeah, I'll just wait for it to come out at home. You know, or more importantly, they don't go with friends because right. a lot of them don't have friends. Or they it is don't. harder for men to make friends. It is yeah, that is something studies yeah. have shown. Yeah. You know, and it, like where, you know, if there's something even just sort of remotely less unappealing for women. They'll at least go with their boyfriend and or spouse to see it, you know? So I, I definitely true that those movies highlighted a, a demographic that was being ignored by a genre product. Agreed. So our next comment is from Chris who writes, I like the podcast, but the constant digs against Trump and the straight white males and claims that the January 6th protesters were homicidal insurrectionists and not rioters who were <laughs> left let in the door by Capitol Police were unnecessary and deflected from the main topic at hand. If Knowles had simply hired a competent person to manage Ain't It Cool News like a business while Knowles was the idea guy and kept his hands to himself, then that site would be still be strong and powerful. I read Ain't It Cool News every day for nearly 20 years, and I don't recall seeing racist and sexist remarks in the talkbacks as this podcast stated occurred on a regular basis. 
there is a lot to unpack in this comment. I don't know if I have the energy to do it. So, you know, Joe, I'll, you I'll address just, it. I will say two things real quick, and I think we should just move on. One Sounds is that good. they they deny the existence of uh, of an insurrection. Yeah. Uh, they also deny the existence of hateful remarks in the talkback yeah. section of Ain't It Cool News, and uh, mm-hmm. both of these statements are are not. A matter of opinion they're a matter of fact and, and they're wrong on both counts and l- let's move on okay sounds good all right so our next comment is from michael burke who writes you can make a drinking game out of this podcast every time he mentions angry white males or trump you have to do a shot i don't think he mentioned it that much but i said yeah. i said angry white males a good amount because this is a story full of angry white males that that you did. I think Trump you only. I mean, I don't think you talked about Trump every episode. I yeah. you know, and I this actually made me think like was I overly critical of Trump? I did think that the things Trump said about women in the Access Hollywood tape were bad. 100%. Yeah. There's a they are. that shows our culture, right? And you know, if we elect a president who who made those comments on tape that yeah. shows that we give that behavior a pass and therefore is relevant. I think a lot of people don't realize that this isn't just, let me tell you, th- this case that exists in a vacuum because, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, right? We're all part of our culture and all of these things inform each other. So it's really important to kind of look at things from a critical cultural standpoint, right? So. All right, our next comment is from Tim Riggins, who writes, love the podcast, but really disappointed that you glossed over the Kickstarter scandal. Harry sold tens of thousands, if I remember correctly, thanks to that, and yet you barely gave it a minute. The Kickstarter theft deserves an entire episode. I love that he wants more content. That's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One, uh, if we did another episode, I think it would make uh, Jason Bailey really mad at us. He, he thought this show was too long. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, um, we got a lot of messages from people about this, Chris, and I'm going to offer my perspective on why we didn't do it overall. But before I do that, I want to share a few factors behind this logic. And, uh, you know, I didn't really talk about this much in the show, so you, you may not be aware of this either, but um. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are unaware of what the Kickstarter controversy was, uh, in the early 2010s, Harry Knowles was hired by The Nerdist and YouTube to create a web TV series, uh, Ain't It Cool News with Harry Knowles. And after one season, both YouTube and The Nerdist said, yeah, that's enough. And so they stopped producing uh, after the first season. Harry Knowles then took the initiative to crowdfund a second season and he needed a hundred thousand dollars to do this. And, um, which is not a lot of money for a season of television. As someone, I'm glad you're here because you've worked in production. (laughs) You know, uh, that productions can gobble up a little, that much money really easily. Yeah. One episode, a pilot easily. I could gobble that plus more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, so a couple of things though, one, you know, we focused this series on Ain't It Cool News' impact on filmmaking and cinema culture. And we excluded the the work they did around TV. You know, there's this whole part of the site called Ain't It Cool News Coaxial. We left that out. Uh, we left out any mention of Ain't It Cool News games, 
and at Cool News Comics, which was actually very influential in the world of comic books for a time. Uh, we also left out Ain't It Cool News Productions, which was this entirely separate business entity that Harry Knowles created with a TV producer named Brett A. Hart. And I did reach out to Brett A. Hart um, early in the research part of the story. He declined to be interviewed. Um, if you were to ask me my opinion, it seemed that he just didn't want to talk about how he had anything to do with Harry Knowles. Um, so we didn't really have that perspective. The show is an oral history. So without his perspective, and uh, when you consider the fact that no one else who worked at Ain't It Cool News had anything to do with that show, um, there wasn't really a way to talk about that in an audio fashion. And the most important part, though, and, and here's my perspective, Chris, which is that I wasn't there when this happened. The Kickstarter was created in 2013. The second season wasn't delivered until 2015. Uh, so to those people who maybe contributed money to this Kickstarter, that wait from 2013 to 2015 probably felt immense and they probably got pissed off, you know, like, where's the show? Where's the show? Where's the show? You know, but from my perspective, you know, my bird's eye 2020 of uh, looking back on the past perspective, here's the thing. Um, he created a Kickstarter to fund a second season of his TV show. And then he created the second season of his TV show. There, there was a delay. Two years is a long time to wait, but there wasn't much transparency. You know, and I think you could say that about Ain't It Cool News uh, throughout its entirety. But in the end, the show that everyone paid to have produced was produced. And, and that's the story. There's really no there there beyond that. And I understand at the time people were angry. They were pissed. You know, uh, they thought it was just a huge grift, but uh, it, they delivered the show. The last thing I'll add is that Kickstarter really isn't a great way to fund projects, not only from the side of the payers, but also the people creating the projects. So, yeah, no, that's interesting. I don't know anything about the Ain't It Cool News Kickstarter, um, yeah. but we, I talk about Kickstarter in my games classes because, you know, there's quite a few games that have been funded on Kickstarter. And there was this sort of golden age of Kickstarter period that happened around then, right? 2013, 2014, where a lot of people, a lot of us were throwing money at things on Kickstarter and, and we got burned, right? Um, that being said, I've played a lot of games that have been made and I still fund things on Kickstarter, a lot of independent games, because gosh, it's hard to be an independent, you know, game maker. And if you have a good concept, yeah, I'll throw you $10. And if I don't get that back, that's okay. You know, I'm happy to support you as an independent game maker. Um, but I've gotten a lot of, you know, cool games from it. I think, you know, Double Fine is a great example of that. I don't know yeah. if you, if you've played um, Broken Age, but that was a great game that was, you know, funded via Kickstarter. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, it would be interesting to have a whole podcast series sort of unpacking how Kickstarter became a thing and how it burned, right? And like where it is today and like what happened in those cases. Like Anita Sarkeesian, like do you remember her Kickstarter um, issue, how she was getting harassed and sexually assaulted and like bomb threats and rape threats and all of this stuff just because she asked for money to make a video series critiquing representation in games yeah and she 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 
followed through and produced the series, but people were so upset that she dared to want to make a media series that critiqued games that she became a target for this massive, you know, harassment campaign. This was right before Gamergate. Um, it was sort of the tip of what was to come, right? So yeah, Kickstarter, you know, that, that's an interesting sort of phenomenon to unpack. You know, I didn't leave out the Kickstarter controversy because I'm in cahoots. I just left it out because there's a lot know, of it, content. <laughs> there's a lot of content to cover, and it's a story that butts right up to the controversy in 2017. And someone tried to say that that the Kickstarter controversy was far worse than the allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment. What? I disagree. Your ten dollars matters more than someone being sexually assaulted. Cool. Like that's a weird take. Yeah, you do you, bro. <laughs> but uh, I disagree. Yeah. Disagree. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Our next comment is from Carlos, who wrote, speaking from experience, how do you handle dealing with the backlash of tackling such a controversial subject like Ain't It Cool? Was there any negative feedback coming from the pro-Harry camp? Did it turn toxic? Um, we did get some negative feedback from people who were supportive of Harry Knowles. You know, they think that uh, the, the series was a hit piece, which is ironic because, you know, other backlash we received from people is people thought it was hero worship so it was sort of funny yeah to sort of be accused of both things at the same time yeah which i i think means what we did was we told the story with a perspective and and you know with a sense of, of trying to learn as much as we could and present the information as to why this was important but then also why it fell apart yeah. And I, I do really like that you revealed your personal connection to the website. I think that that gave a little empathy I, to the people that are good, well-intentioned people that kind of got tied up in all of it, if that makes sense. So um, it kind of helped us under, but, but maybe, maybe even less that because some of them don't deserve empathy, some do, right? But even le less than that, like, it, it, it kind of helps us understand how people just got caught up in it, like why he was a compelling figure. So I thought it was kind of, a, I thought that that was interesting and necessary. And it also showed your, you, you know, you revealed your hand, right? Like these are, this is my personal connection. Here are my biases. I'm laying yeah. on the table so I can unlearn them and you know, tell you the story. And so, yeah, I thought it was a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's absolutely the case that, I, you know, I will say that, you know, this is a story of someone who is biased, trying to learn things outside of their bias. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I can do it, God damn it. So can you. Mm -hmm. That's all. That's agreed. Yeah. I think that's great. All right, our next question comes from Brian, who writes, I'm still curious about the story of Harry's wife in this whole story. Interesting omission from the podcast. You know, I, I understand his curiosity, right? Because we want to know, because he's so, he's such an interesting character. We want to know about the people who love him. <laughs> um, but, you know, she doesn't seem to have much of an online presence, and I'm sure that's by choice. So, I'm, you know, I, I you probably couldn't, you probably didn't have a lot of access to her life, but also it sounded like you might want to just respect that too and leave her out because she wasn't part of Ain't It Cool News, was she? 
Um, she wrote a couple of pieces. She did. You know, I think she started mm-hmm. tried to introduce like a little bit of music criticism into the ah. role of Anticle News that didn't quite take a take off. Uh, but you know, we we had one mention of of Harry's wife and his wedding. There was sort of this whole deleted mm-hmm. scene from episode eight, and you know we. Wrote this episode. It was running kind of long, and I was like, "What to cut? What to cut?" And you, you were definitely a proponent of cutting the wedding yeah. footage yeah. out. What? And just so people know, why did why did you decide that? Um, it just didn't feel relevant to the story, right? Like, I we had enough to tackle, and you know that I don't think people realize how long the episodes were like and initially, <laughs> especially in the beginning, right? We had to do a lot of cutting. Something had to go. So one of the things we would do is kind of look through and say, what is relevant to the story? What is interesting? Okay, we need to keep everything relevant and interesting. Okay, what is what is interesting but not relevant? And then we'd have to decide, do we have the time, the tape to keep it, right? And things just got cut. Yeah, you know, and the other thing is when there were times when there was an interesting detail in the story, but it led to no payoff or change in the conclusion, Right. Um, we left some of those things out, um, you know, and sometimes people are mad at me because I left parts of their stories out of the overall story we told, but you know, Harry's still married to this person. Um, the one thing I will say though, is, uh, we'll go ahead and just share that deleted scene, uh, right here. Because Roland and Harry knew each other for as long as both of them were alive, they share a bond that runs deep. It's because of this deep bond that Roland was Harry Knoll's best man at Harry's wedding to his wife Patricia Cho Jones on July 15, 2007. According to the same Hollywood Reporter article that focused on Harry Knoll's tax woes, Harry met Patricia on MySpace in 2006. That means she would have been around 19 at the time. He was 37. As for Harry and Patricia's wedding ceremony, the event was as movie-obsessed as Harry Knoll's was himself. The wedding party of groomsmen included filmmakers Richard Kelly of Donnie Darko fame and Eli Roth, as well as Paul Dini, co-creator of Batman the Animated Series. Other wedding guests included actor Elijah Wood and cult horror film legend Angela Bettis, as well as film producers Jim Jacks, Rana Joy Glickman, and Elizabeth Avalon, as well as novelist and screenwriter Ernie Klein of Fanboys and Ready Player One fame. The announcement for the ceremony itself was no less ostentatious. Rather than send out their wedding announcement on printed stationery, in true movie geek fashion, Harry Knowles informed his family and friends of this major update in his personal life with a short movie. A short movie produced by Oscar-winning filmmakers Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor of Lord of the Rings fame, that is. Of all the media artifacts connected to the history of Ain't It Cool News, This wedding announcement video is one of the most bizarre, which is saying a lot. A parody announcement for a new line of collectible figurines produced by Peter Jackson and his Weta Collectibles team, this fake commercial depicts Harry Knowles as various grotesque monsters. Here's a clip featuring Richard Taylor. Everyone's really excited about this. The sculptors have been working overtime through their weekends in their evenings to get the pieces as perfect as possible. We obviously pride ourselves on anatomical accuracy. And in the case of Harry, he wanted to know that we got his body proportions just right. To Eric Vespi, who for years looked up to Harry as a mentor, 
This wedding was a happy conclusion to a central conflict that Harry had faced for most of his life. I should note that in the years since, this was something Eric was later forced to re-examine. Harry's got a lot of loneliness issues. You know, I, I had hoped that that would have gone away with uh, when he got married and, you know, he found somebody that would stick by him and, and, you know, he'd have somebody in his life, but obviously that's not the case. Cause you know, a good deal of the accusations that came out against him were in that time. Eric was one of many then current or former Anik cool news contributors who were at this event. Others included C Robert Cargill, Steve Prokopi, Rebecca Elliott, Kevin Beagle, and Jed Strom, just to name a few. But there was one notable absence, Drew McWeenie. I say it's notable because just as Cargill points out, most people assume that Harry and Drew were not only partners, but great friends. They were very good friends. Online, they played up this back and forth animosity, which was kind of our gimmick. It was part, it was one of the, the genius things of Ain't It Cool. And they would often play up being antagonists of one another. In fact, hence the Moriarty name. He was the, you know, Harry's arch nemesis. But they were, they were fucking best friends. Bleep. All right, and we're back. <laughs> and, you know, so there, I hope you, it was an interesting story. You know, a lot of people came to Harry Knoll's wedding, big time celebrities. <laughs> I was really impressed that he got the creator of Batman the Animated Series to show up. <laughs> I loved and, that show when I was a kid. Uh, one of the greatest shows of all time. But, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, this did not further the story. So we left it out. Yep. All right. Our next uh, comment is from Robert, who writes, I've been listening to your podcast, and I had the unique perspective of being a fly on the wall during that period of time as an employee of the Draft House in the late 90s, early aughts. I was there for a lot of this and have reevaluated many of my feelings for this wow. time. For instance, the hay bales in the wall was something of an inside joke to staff. But yeah, looking at it today and seeing the potential tragedy, yeah, lots to reconsider. Great job on the pod. Looking forward to the next. Something happened after we, we released the hay bales episode. Someone was kind of giving us flack and making fun of us for comparing the original Alamo, which had walls that were lined with bales of hay, to the theater at the end of Inglorious Bastards. Um, you know, they were they were saying that it was ridiculous that we would compare these two things. You know, I am guilty of making metaphorical comparisons. Sure. <laughs> that is one thing I do. It's like there's people that like puns. You really like movie metaphors, right? I like well, I like metaphors in general. And because right. I was telling a story that was so movie adjacent, right, I tried right, to right. throw some movie metaphors in there. Yeah. You got me. Hands up. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm walking out on that. Um, but. I think in this one case, the comparison was literal. Yeah. You know, that in Inglorious Bastards, this woman sets out on a mission to burn everyone alive and, and fills the theater up full of flammable materials. Mm -hmm. You know, I will say, here's a funny thing that happened. So I was like, well, maybe Hay's not flammable. You know, I was like, maybe <laughs> I, I need to research that. You know, so I did a quick Google search and <laughs> Hay is not only flammable, it it also, when you have a bunch of hay sort of stacked on top of each other, it ferments <laughs> and, and creates explosive gases. Yeah. Yes, um, it's the bad. <laughs> the other thing I did, I was like, well, maybe this wasn't a crime in Texas. So I called a fire marshal in Austin, Texas and sort of explained the scenario. And this fire marshal immediately starts to stop me 
and start interrogating me to see if I'm talking about an actual place oh. that exists there in Texas mm-hmm. right now because he wanted to go shut it down. I was like, no, 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 Good. no, no. But, you know, I guess he thought maybe in a way I was sort of quote unquote asking for a friend. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I really was literally just asking about a thing that happened a long time ago, but turns out would have been illegal even back then. Um, yeah. It was a terrible choice. And yeah. I, I'm glad that this theater of the Alamo realizes, wow, like this place maybe didn't give a fuck about me. Yeah. No, so. it was interesting to hear that perspective of someone who worked there. So thanks. Thanks for the comment, Robert. Yeah. Um, all right. Our next comment is from Mean Dumb Blonde. Who asked, did Harry in, uh, invents any knowledge that the film he used as an example of movies being pretend the accused was actually based on a true story? That seems like a big miss for a movie geek. Yeah, big miss. And I'll I'll say no. You know, he talked about getting a uh, Rashomon poster for his birthday, oh, too. Yeah. The birthday or uh, the, the Christmas or his birthday. They're both close together. Um, after the accusations came out as sort of a justification for what it's like to be falsely accused, which is interesting because, you know, that's not really a story about being falsely accused of anything. Mm -hmm. It's a story presented from different perspectives. And, you know, one of those perspectives is a woman who was assaulted in a world that has no value for her perspective Mm. or point of view. Like she is sexually assaulted but none of the male characters see it as that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, that to me is telling. And that that was a major disconnect. Uh, you know, and I, there was a movie that came out last year, The Last Duel, a Ridley Scott film um, starring uh, Adam Driver. And, you know, what I really loved about that film was that it presented a rape through the perspective of a rapist, mm-hmm. where he thought he was being suave and cavalier and romantic with this woman, you know, being a quote unquote, take charge guy, but he was assaulting this woman and he was so, he was so deluded by his culture that he couldn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. Our next comment is from Jonas who writes, hi there. Great work on the show until coming across this. I hadn't sat down and had structured thoughts about the role in it. Cool played in my more formative movie lover years. I think you already covered the bases with the great movie writers, but back then I was avidly reading Hercules' take on all the new Buffy episodes, so there was some excellent TV writing there also. That said, your podcast was also an awful reminder of how much I hated that Blade 2 review when it went live. I was there. All in all, I want to thank you all for the great work on this podcast. I moved on from Ain't It Cool, fortunately, but your podcast reminded me and forced me to accept it did play a role into where I am today. BR Jonas. Wow. Well, there you yeah, go, Jonas. Thanks, Jonas. I love yeah. that it kind of helped him self-reflect, right, on his sort of formative, you know, media years and, you know, helped him sort of maybe unlearn some things, right? So I think that that's Here's really how- cool. Hmm? That's That's a huge reason why we did it, yeah. Yeah, and also I'm glad I was not there when the Blade 2 review dropped. Who was it? I remember seeing a comment that said that they wanted you to talk about that Blade review more, and I was like, why? <laughs> that You're was insa- enough. Yeah, yeah. no thanks. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Our next comment is from Brian Linder, who says, hey, Joe, enjoying the trip down memory lane. I was in Harry's orbit from the early Usenet days and later through my work as a founding editor on the Star Wars fan site, TheForce.net. Yeah. <laughs> Big fan. Nice. I was actually almost brought on as staff at Ain't It Cool News, but for whatever reason, the thing fell through. A blessing in disguise, since my TFN buddies and I would soon get picked up by IGN. And the rest is history. Do you think you'll stick with the online fan culture for the second season or branch out into something new? Um, You know. Undecided. <laughs> <laughs> I, you- I, go ahead. No, I said undecided, or are you decided? Well, you know, throughout the production of the show, we we definitely batted around a few ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, and in writing about this online movie culture, I think we we encountered a lot of toxic attitudes, and I was thinking we could mm-hmm. shift to a less toxic fandom. So That'd maybe maybe video games. Sure. <laughs> 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 we can look at some positive. <laughs> positive communities in video games i mean there there's some toxic ones and then there there's less toxic ones right like anything right so if you were to analyze a twilight community it's going to be a lot different than a marvel community right because there's yeah. different people and then there's different moderation practices and rules and norms so yeah it, it would be fun to to look at video game culture but but the short of it all jokes aside um you know we we have a few we have lots of ideas yeah. And, um, uh, I'm actually grabbing a drink with both Chris and Eddie this weekend. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, one of the topics we bring up is what we're going to be doing next. Uh, but I, I do need to take a just a short break. I've been working on this nonstop for two years. Yeah. So I'm ready to take a little breather. I thought about that too when they were complaining about the Kickstarter campaign for Harry Knowles. You know, you know, I'm not one to defend him, but I mean, two years to come up with a second series of a show for a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's like nothing, right? So, like, it took you two years to do this podcast, right? So it's kind of it's. I I think I think people just don't realize how how much money and time media production takes. Yeah, I'm not uh, ever kickstarting a season of download. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll say that. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. 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 All right. Our next comment is from Michael, who says, just finished listening to episode nine, and I wanted to let you know I found the Knowles podcast profoundly moving, sobering, and even healing. Oh, wow. I w- yeah. He writes, I was an avid reader of Ain't It Cool News in the 90s and early 2000s and wasn't awake to the toxicity at its core. In retrospect, it's pretty obvious. And that shames me. Would love to email a fuller reaction if the pod has an email address. Thank you for your dogged reporting and for leading with empathy. That is like the best compliment ever. Thank you, Michael. That was, you know, that's really why we did it. Uh, yeah. You know, and we, I, I've had a couple of messages like this where people are starting to get a little bit of perspective on maybe how formative the time they spend the time they spent on the internet during their teens and young adulthood was and uh, how that might've given them a lot of bad attitudes and beliefs about things as that, that have shaped their lives. And so I'm, I'm glad that Michael had that realization. That was a really great message to hear. Yeah. Our next comment is from Noel who writes, hi, Joel and Christina. I'm Noel and I work as a culture and entertainment editor at GQ Spain. Wow. Big fan of, I know. Big fan of your podcast. I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed and learned from it so far. 
It's great. It's really great. My question is, do you think Harry Knowles could have been a real generational replacement for the likes of Ebert and Siskel? Or his TV show adventure was doomed from the start? Thanks again for your podcast. It really has an international audience. This comment made me so happy. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, people are listening to us in Spain. That's, and yeah. also uh, culture and entertainment editors listening to us. That's such a great compliment. <laughs> Yeah, no. yeah. Mm -hmm. There was uh, one comment someone wrote on Twitter from Iceland, and I Ooh. had it translated. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, it's interesting the uh, the reach the show had, and it just I think a lot of that is because all these people were aware of Ain't It Cool News, and they were fans of that site. So um, mm -hmm. it was I didn't expect that when we started producing the show, but um, I do think that uh, this website was doomed. Uh, at the start because the business model is easy to replicate. And uh, there were people who unlike Harry were actually interested in doing the work themselves. And and when you have that situation, uh, those are the people that, that will win and come out on top. There's a reason Collider is now probably one of the largest internet movie news websites today with millions of unique visitors per month. And it's because uh, Steve Weintraub was interested in doing the work. And he did it. So there. And also, I think that like Harry's persona that he created was something that did not transform with our culture, if that makes sense. Like we outgrew that very quickly. Yeah. His persona worked during that time period, but we kind of grew up past that and he didn't grow with us. And so I don't I don't think he could have ever been a generational replacement, but well, you know, because he was he was a major figure during the infancy and adolescence of mm -hmm. the Internet. And, you know, I think the Internet has I don't want to say it's a mature place at all, but it has matured. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that there's aesthetics and attitudes that no longer gel with what Harry was. And, you know, he, he is, if nothing else, a person who refuses to change. Yeah. Our next comment is from Joshua. Fully curious, though feel free to ignore as this might get a lot to turn on you, but do you feel the blowback to Batman and Robin was overdone? I watched it recently, and it's not a great film, but not nearly as bad as the detractors would have me to believe. I almost feel like this was like gay panic 2.0. That's an interesting take. Thank you for the podcast. It was a trip, but interesting and well told. So what do you think? I don't remember anything about Batman and Robin, so I'm going to let you handle this one. I, I do think when you watch the film, you can sense that it was uh, a troubled production, that there were issues behind the scenes. It wasn't entirely successful. Um, at the same time, I do think that some of the hate lobby lobbed at the film uh, by sites like Ain't It Cool News was cl clearly fueled by gay panic. Mm. And, and I do appreciate now sort of the rediscovery the film is getting, not only from young people who maybe watched the film when they were kids, or, you know, who weren't even born when it came out and are now sort of watching it outside of the context of its time. Uh, but I, more than that, I also really appreciate this sort of LGBTQ rediscovery that's happening. And to me, I think that's the most interesting thing about films is talking about films and culture from different perspectives and hearing other people's takes based on who they are. And so I'm, I'm here all day for, you know, people... <laughs> who queer kids, queer adults yeah. who mm -hmm. love this film, you know, and the, the last thing I'll say is I, I wish we had lighter takes on Batman. I, I hate that 
this movie sort of became the death of that in film because I think he's too dark. But I could yeah. talk. All, I could talk about Batman all day. Let's not do it. Yeah. Although I will say the Lego Batman lightens up Batman. Let's let's give Lego some credit for that. But yeah, yeah. other 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 than Lego, the Lego franchise, he's a very dark character. Yeah. Um. All right. Next comment is from William. Do Devin Farachi next. He's a terrible. Per- Blah. Let me say that again. From William. Do Devin Farachi next. He's a terrible person. Who's Devin Farachi? <laughs> you know he was. In episode eight, Hay Bales, he was the first uh, oh. film critic to get uh, to get Me Too'd. You know, right, right, of, right, right, he, right. He got Me Too'd, and then his his incident then led to Harry Knowles uh, almost a year later. But uh, two quick things to that. One, no. Uh, two, yeah. I do appreciate at least that unlike Harry Knowles, Devin did do the work to reach out to this one who accused him of, of assaulting her and uh, to apologize. And, you know, she accepted his apology publicly. So, um, you know, I, I think that is an example that a lot of people could follow. Um, but he is a very complicated character. And no, I won't be doing a series about him. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. Next comment <laughs> is from Aaron, who says, I wanted to take a moment and just tell you a resounding congratulations of starting, creating, and most importantly, completing download. Woohoo! As a creator, I know how hard it can be to see something across the finish line, especially when you're nearing that halfway point, or even worse, close to the end. What you and your team have accomplished is a fascinating look into so many aspects of the what the internet has become. The hubris the internet allows people to lean into and push those serotonin buttons in their brains. I greatly appreciate you focusing on the writers, the actual beating hearts of the site. While I know none of them, it made me feel as if I did and made me want to get to know them and support their work even more. I've enjoyed every minute of the podcast, although I am taking my time with Harry's interview (laughs) as I find listening to him talk agitates me, but I'm working through it. I feel you, Aaron. So he says, years ago, I wrote and directed a web series about podcasts called Casters. Podcasts were so unknown that we had to start our show with an actual definition of what a podcast is. It's amazing to see how far they've come and how far the medium is evolving. You are absolutely a part of that evolution. Wow. I'm, I'm sure you are already, but please be absolutely proud of what you've succeeded in doing and take a well-deserved rest, but not too long. You've got to get back to work and make headway into the next thing. That, that's so nice. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one thing I just want to say is thanks, Aaron, again, for writing that. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of experiments with this first season. I think mm-hmm. that so much of narrative podcasting comes from the norms and conventions established by NPR mm-hmm. and and Ira Glass at This American Life. And I, Who is I amazing. Love, I love him. <laughs> anyway, I love him. I love, I love those Life. things. Mm-hmm. Well, what I am saying is that those things were designed for uh, terrestrial radio. radio. Sure. And I, I think that you, know, you can try new things that wouldn't necessarily work on radio with podcasting. And There is one thing we did, you know, and and this was sort of part of our editorial conversations uh, where in the early episodes, you know, I took a huge chunk of time to establish these uh, supporting characters like Drew McQueenie, Eric Vespi, C. Robert Cargill. And each time I did that, you're like, you might want to cut this since it doesn't have anything to do with the this episode necessarily Mm -hmm. and its themes. And, 
you know, the thing I argued was that I'm trying to establish these characters and mm-hmm. just sort of progress them through the story. So it, it was cool to see that that experiment paid off. I didn't know if it would or not. I suspected some people might think, "What? Why is he spending so much time talking about this high school kid who worked for Ain't It Cool News?" But uh, it looks like some people did get that, and you know, I'm glad that paid off. And I hope more people realize this is a fairly new medium, and we could try things that that wouldn't work on radio um, here in this space, and they, they could pay off. Like take some take some swings, take take some chances. Yeah, I do think it worked, and it also kind of helped. You know, you always use the the metaphor of look behind the curtain, right? It helped us kind of look behind the curtain um, into the lives of the people that participated on the site because so much of internet culture, you don't know who you're talking to and what their background is. And this is sort of revealing that, right? And so yeah. I, th- I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I want to make it clear too that, you know, when, when you were like cut these things and we disagreed, it wasn't like bitter disagreements, but oh, you, were no, just, yeah. you were checking me. It's like, why is this here? And I had to really... Yeah. I had to really approach that with intentionality. So I'm glad that those intentions worked out. Cool. Yep. Yep. Um, and our last comment, I I, I want to preface it by saying I that Joe put this comment here. That I, I did. That I, I did. Yes, that it's There's not for me. But it's so nice. But Daniel writes, I wanted to thank Christina for her contribution to Download Success. She really made those Q&A episodes even more enjoyable to listen to. And she deserves to be recognized for what she brought to the series. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. That's like, that made my day. So thank you. That was a lovely, lovely uh, compliment. So yeah, I appreciate it. Compare and contrast to uh, the reactions I get for a lot of my work on the show. Oh. <laughs> and uh, the, the other thing is, is, I'll say though, is that it's very true that you, um, your contribution, your contribution to the shows, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, say that we're even successful, but just to its right. completion and the fact that some people did like it um, uh, is immeasurable. And I, I, I really am grateful that you did it. Thanks. I'm happy to be a part of it. But I, I do want to just sort of uh, really point out to everyone that 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 Joe was the driving force behind this podcast. This was his passion project, right? And I think so much of what makes this project good it all comes from Joe that Eddie and I just kind of helped him refine it. So, so thanks Joe for telling a great story and putting all the blood, sweat and tears that you did into the podcast. Well, thank you. But you know, we could maybe spiral into sort of patting each other's on the back, but you know, (laughs) one of the downsides of choosing not to do these episodes um, during the final half of the season was that uh, people I didn't get to record our conversations as much. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I am glad that we had this one final opportunity yeah. to do that. Um, was there one particular thing about this show that you was your favorite part? Oh, um, you mean working on the project or just part of the podcast that was my favorite or any of the above? Any of the above. Um, I mean, I just, I really, I'm a lifelong learner and I really enjoyed learning more about this internet community and then the effect that it had on our media culture. That was fascinating. And I'm glad I was able to work with you and Eddie to help, you know, share these stories with others as well. 
I think that we can learn from our mistakes. So I think it's a good thing to kind of self-reflect and analyze on things that went wrong. And, and so we don't, you know, fall into that same trap again. So Mm -hmm. I think I've just generally enjoyed that. What about you? Um, you know, I think that when the show first began and I was talking about how the site was very influential, um, a lot of people chafed at that. A lot of people thought I was crazy, but then since we started, I think a lot of those influences kind of manifested and re-manifested in a lot of bizarre ways in, in our day-to-day life, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so it is sort of, someone referred to uh, the fact that they were living in, quote, the Harry Knowles internet. And um, yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with that. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do appreciate that. Not, I don't appreciate, I appreciate that. I wasn't crazy. I'll say that. <laughs> you know, that uh, it wasn't just a bad, a bad thesis. So that, you know, there's there's always a periods of doubt, and uh, I you know I wanted to give up a few times. There were times when I was just I'd had it, but you know we just stayed on it and we finished it. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that we finished it and that it is what it is. I learned a lot of lessons that I look forward to applying to our next story. Awesome. Well, Joe, it's been fun. I look forward to what's next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I look forward to getting to hang out. We produced this whole show remotely. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to actually hanging out with you guys in person. Me uh, too. Yeah, we'll we'll see see this weekend. So thank you guys for listening. One thing I do want to say real quickly is um, we had Wally Wallace and Jessica Mashburn collaborate on an an original uh, song that we played at the end of the Harry Knowles episode. It was inspired by the Daniel Johnston song, King Kong. And so uh, not many people made it to the end of that episode. So I was just going to play it here. So um, here it goes. And thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Chris, again for your work. And Eddie's not here, but thank you, Eddie. Thanks, Eddie. And um, you guys enjoy. See you soon. Bye. They shot him down. They shot him down They thought he was a monster But he was a king
Thank you.